Let me invite your attention to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Roman church. Romans chapter 1. And um, may I simply say that we are looking at themes from Romans 1 for this week and Lord willing next week. Um, but we've already covered verses 18, 19, 20. And our, our text really begins this morning in, in verse 21. But we are going to read beginning at verse 18. We've already covered 18, 19, 20, but we will we'll read it because it's a part of the paragraph. Here we go. Romans chapter 1 at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it endures forever. In the previous two sermons as a part of this series, I, I have said this before, but let me say it again. Verses, verses 19 through 32 are basically a commentary on verse 18. What verses 19 through 32 give you is simply a description of what happens when men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the portrait that it draws is not a pretty one. That perhaps was pretty hard to listen to. 
And, and I think there's reasons why it's hard to listen to. First of all, um, I think that not everybody in this room really believes that what you're holding is a book that God wrote. I think there are some here who, who struggle with whether or not their Bibles can be trusted. And um, we understand that, and we, we consider it our job to help you or to give you reasons why you can safely say that what you, what you have, what you read, is, is the very mind of God, is black words on a white page. But I know some of you struggle with that. The other problem is that we live in a land of 400 prophets of Baal. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, if you were here back in June when I opened up this little series, I told you a story. I started out with a story uh, that's contained in 1 Kings 22 about um, two kings, Jehoshaphat and Ahab, who had met together and they were trying to decide whether they would join their armies and attack uh, Ramoth Gilead. And so they consulted the 400 prophets of Baal. And they, in unison, uh, raised their voice to say, Yes, go fight at Ramoth Gilead, and you will be victorious, and it's going to be great, and you go do it. And after they said that, one of the kings, Jehoshaphat, said, um, but, uh, but, <laughs> Is there not a prophet of Yahweh here? And Ahab said, Well, yeah, there is one, but I hate him, because he didn't ever say anything nice about me. And Joseph said, well, let's call him anyway. So they called him over there, and sure enough, Micaiah, the prophet, says, you can go attack him, but you're going to die, Ahab, and you're going to be slaughtered. You're going to be defeated at Ramoth Gilead. And he was right. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, there were 400 voices saying the opposite. And you and I live in a culture of the 400 voices of Baal, or the prophets of Baal. Reading something like Romans chapter 1 comes as a shock to our system, because at best, ladies and gentlemen, at best, Romans 1 is a minority report. Because all the other, everybody else where I go, the, the media and education and, and the corporate world, they're all saying something different. They're all uniting to say, that's a bunch of hooey. You can't believe something like that. Surely you don't believe. Surely you're not that unsophisticated and, and, and unintelligent to believe something like that. Now, guys, that's not a small thing. You and I live in a world of 400 prophets of Baal. And they're all saying one thing. And this is saying another. I, I, I told you back in June that I can't make that call for you. I don't know who you want to listen to. I don't know whether you want to listen to Romans 1 or whether you want to listen to the 400 prophets of Baal. That's your call. I can only say that the consequences or, or, the, or the stakes are very high. Ahab lost his life because he listened to the wrong counselors. I can't make that call for you. You're going to have to make that. 
you're going to have to decide whether what you've just heard out of Romans chapter 1 and what I'm going to say about it, which is, I guarantee you, not any easier to listen to, you're going to have to decide whether this is the truth or whether the 400 prophets of Baal are telling you the truth. That's your call. I'll do my best to um, to give you reasons, but ultimately you've got to make that decision. Now, I want to I want to take the text beginning at, at verse 21 and going through the end, and I want to divide it up into three sections. First of all, I want you to see um, what the consequences of suppression of the truth look like in general terms. And then I want to show you, secondly, what God does about that. And then, as Paul closes, I want to show you what suppression of the truth looks like in specific terms. Because that last paragraph, he gives you so many specifics. So we're going to look at, we're going to look at sin in general terms. And then we're going to look at what God does about it, which is kind of the order of the text. And then we're going to close with a section of looking at the specifics of what happens, the specifics of the consequences of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Hope you got your Bibles open. Take a look. Beginning at verse 21, because he begins to tell you what happens all as a result of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. He, uh, there, there's several little clauses or phrases that I could pick up out of there and use it as kind of the summary head, but here's the one that I've chosen. It's when Paul says, Thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. They became fools. One of the things that happens, ladies and gentlemen, when a culture, when a church, when a person chooses to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they think they're wise when in essence they have become a fool. Paul goes on to say, uh, um, they're, they're futile in their thinking. Um, not only does he mention their thing, they're, they're, they're fools in every way. They're foolish in their thinking. And then he says, they're foolish hearts. It's in verse 21. They become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Not only can they not think straight, not only do they come up with the things that are not smart and are unwise, but that internal world, that, that world of emotions, their, their, their foolish hearts are darkened. They can't think right. Their emotions are topsy-turvy. They're wrecked. All because, ladies and gentlemen, they have chosen to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say, before, before he lists some kind of specifics of the immorality, he mentions that they have become idolaters. Instead of yielding to the revelation that has been granted them in nature, they decide to substitute their own ideas for what they could have found. And if you remember about the illustration that I used, it's about the two natives that are walking through the, the, the path in the darkest part of the jungle and they find a wristwatch. Well, forget the wristwatch for a second. Let's just say they're looking at a at the forest, at the at the trees, and they see this giant redwood, and there's this beautiful tree, and and it's just so majestic and overpowering, and and um, and they wonder, well, now who made that tree? And they decide, well, well, we didn't make that tree, and I don't know about anybody that made that tree. And so, instead of trying to find who made the tree, here's what they do: 
They chop down the tree. They take a chunk of it. They fashion it into something, some kind of animal or creeping thing, some kind of reptile. They paint it all up. And they bow down and they worship it. They add insult to injury. Because once you suppress the truth and the righteousness, you then choose to worship something man-made. Instead of worshiping the God that made you, you worship the God that you made. And then in verse 25 it says they exchange the truth about God for a lie. You know, guys, some of your translations don't say that. Some of your translations say they exchange the truth of God for the lie. And uh, if you've got a New King James or a New American Standard Bible in your lap, it's going to say the lie, not a lie. And so that, that raised a question in my own mind. So I went to the Greek New Testament. I, I, I looked it up. And sure enough, the definite article is in there. For those of you for whom this matters, it's in the dative singular. The, the Greek phrase is toisudai. There, the, the definite article is clearly in the text. So what Paul is saying is they exchange the truth of God, not for a lie. They, cha- they exchange the truth of God for the lie. Now, what is that? What lie is he talking about? Well, the text doesn't say, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a guess. Here's my best educated guess, that the lie that he's referring to is the same one that Satan tried to pawn off on Adam and Eve in Eden. You remember that, don't you? When God said, don't eat of that tree. And um, they ate it anyway because Satan had told them, did God really say that? <laughs> you shall not surely die. You can go ahead and do what you want to because you can sin with impunity. God is not going to condemn people simply because they ate some fruit. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. You know, guys, if I could pause at this point just to make a little bit of an application. I um, If you've ever been trained or taught uh, in college or elsewhere, if you've ever sat at the feet of the gods of the philosophers, you have certainly heard of the name of René Descartes. He's a French mathematician. He was a philosopher and and he was known for his assertion that is called the tabula rasa. You ever heard of that? Remember that from college? The tabula rasa? What it means is blank slate. And what he was suggesting is that man comes into the world as a blank slate. And that the culture writes on this blank slate of, of an individual. Uh, and consequently, all religion in 21st century terms is a, is a cultural co- a construct. That the culture just constructs the religion. And, and thus, man ends up with a religion that his culture has given to him. Again, if Romans chapter 1 does anything, it overturns that idea. Far from being a tabula rasa, far from being a blank slate, what Romans 1 says is that we either worship God or 
We worship something that we made. We worship something that's humanly humanly created. Um, gang, human beings are inherently righteous. Excuse me, inherently religious. We're inherently religious. If we don't worship God, we don't worship nothing. Oh no. Instead, what we do is that we create something ultimate and, and we give ourselves to that. Human beings are by no means neutral when it comes to religion. Oh no, ladies and gentlemen, everybody worships something. They just try to figure out something that they can define as ultimate. That they can give themselves to. And so, we, we, you, we sophisticated Westerners, we think of idols in terms of little statues. And, and by the way, if you go to India, you'll see plenty of statues. But guys, idolatry is not simply a statue. Idolatry is asking anything but God to do things for you that only God can do for you. And whatever that is, it becomes my, my functional center. It's the thing that gives me my functional meaning. And to it I give my functional obedience. It's the thing that if I were to lose it, I wouldn't want to live anymore. It's the thing that, 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 that makes my life essentially meaningful. What is it, ladies and gentlemen? What is it that if you lost it, you wouldn't want to live anymore? Is it your kids? Your career? Your success? Your your friends? Your family approval? Is it sex? Whatever that thing is, folks, it becomes... It becomes the, the functional center of my life. And I, and I give myself to it. You know, guys, um, the, the Bible talks a whole lot about idolatry. And, and one of the places that it talks about is in Psalm 115. And don't, don't turn here because I'll be gone before you um, can get there. But it's in Psalm 115. Let me read you this. It says, um, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel, but do not walk, feet but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Now we all know all that, but then the psalmist says this in verse 8. Listen to this. He says, those who make them become like them. We give ourselves to something other than the living God. We become blind and deaf. We become lifeless. Our hearts grow hard. Our thinking becomes futile. Our foolish hearts are darkened. We become like the things that we worship. Oh, my friend. I can tell you that this very moment you are worshiping something. I don't know what that is. 
It may be the living and triune God. But it may be your kids. It may be your career. It may be thinness. And ladies and gentlemen, if you take the truth of God and suppress it in unrighteousness, ultimately, Paul says, you become a fool. And then secondly, if you'll notice in the text, what does God do about this? In fact, he mentions it three times. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. What does God do? He says, or the text says, he gave them up. He gave them over to their own lusts. You abandon God, he abandons you. Folks, one of the punishments of sin is more sin. God says, you like your sin? Then here. Have a gut full. One of the expressions of the wrath of God, ladies and gentlemen, is that he removes all restraints. And lets us have the thing that we say we want, that we really desire. You like sin. Then here. Have as much of it as you like. And then thirdly. Um... He goes on, that is, Paul goes on to describe the behavior specifically. He describes the behavior that grows out of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And ladies and gentlemen, it is, um, it's not even fun to read this, much less preach it. Um, What you get, oh, really beginning in verses 26 through the end, is a very grim description of human corruption, of of what happens, what are the results, the consequences of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Now, you've got to keep in mind, folks, that, that he's not describing desperate criminals on death row. He's describing fallen humanity who determines that they would rather have the lie than the truth of God. And I, I, you know, I could spend a whole lot of time on this, and I'm not. I'm going to try to summarize it for you as best I can. But what Paul is showing in, in verses 26 through the end is the effects of the false worship that came from rejecting the revelation that God has made available. And what he describes is the complete disintegration of the human life. 
He's already talked about the intellectual confusion and frustration. He mentions that in verse 21 when he's talked about their, 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 futile, their thinking becomes futile. In verse 28, he says he gave them over to a debased mind. So their ability to think, their ability to reason, their ability to give wise judgments and wise counsel and make wise decisions is gone. Uh, he then, of course, I've already mentioned this. He mentions uh, their, their, their foolish hearts are darkened. Their emotional life is a wreck. But to all that, he adds this. Take a look at the text, folks. He describes a complete societal breakdown. He mentions words like envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. He mentions a familial breakdown. He mentions in verse 30 that children become disobedient to parents. He, he mentions relational breakdown. The words are here, ladies and gentlemen. They're not my words. Gossip, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, boastful. And then at least for me, the most searching, poignant thing he says is that he describes the complete breakdown of character and he does so he does so in verse 31 foolish faithless heartless ruthless folks I don't even like to read those words much less tell you that Paul is describing a culture that just just let those words roll off your lips foolish faithless heartless ruthless He mentions in verses 26 and 27 that beauty is exchanged for vileness, that, that design is, is exchanged for perversion. He, um, he talks about the abnormal being substituted for the normal. And then I guess verse 32 is his coup de grace, his last stroke where he finally says, and people become Approving of that kind of behavior. Life becomes vile and vicious and violent and foul and a moral kind of cesspool. Now I know that some of you are seated out there and you're wondering, okay, when is he going to say something about homosexuality? Okay, here it is. It's sin. Paul says that you, it's, it's contrary to nature in verse 26. It's a violation of the nature that God has built in, of the design. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if anything ought to be clear in our minds is the glory and the beauty of the way anatomically uh, God has put together male and female and how marvelously beautiful that is. That is exchanged or perversion, contrary to nature, it is sin.
Ladies and gentlemen, it is no more wicked than some of the sexual sin that the rest of us are into. For my money, we evangelicals have made far too much of homosexual sin while we relish every new episode of Sex in the City. Guys, there is a, there is a remarkable image that's given to us in Genesis chapter 4. You don't turn, but I mean, you, you remember this. Um, it's when Cain kills Abel and God shows up to speak to Cain and, and he says to Cain, he says, um, sin is crouching at your door. Think of that. Do you see what the narrator has done? Moses in this, uh, what Moses has done, uh, under the inspiration of God. He has used an, an image. Sin is, he's animated. He's personified sin and illustrated it as in the image of some predatory animal that is crouching in the shadows and that is poised and and coiled to to spring on some unexpecting prey. Sin hides. Sin consumes. I I, want to say this, folks. The less aware you are of the idols that are in your life, the more overtaken by them you already are. Because you don't know they're there. You know, that's really the, the very definition of an addict. Not many addicts know they're addicts. I don't know how many alcoholics would say, I can't, I can put down this alcohol. Sin is crouching at your door, poised to spring upon its prey. Folks, sin gets inside you. It hardens you. It darkens your heart. It it turns you into a fool. It's, it's not simply something you do. It, it becomes your, your master. It's asking more and more and more of you, which is the very definition of an addict. One of my heroes is a woman, um, a 34-year-old woman who, was, who died of tuberculosis in World War II. She was a part of the French underground. Her name is Simone Vey. And Simone says this, and I, I mean, she's got lots of quotable things, but she says this, all sin... Excuse me. All sins are attempts to fill voids. Gosh, ain't that the truth? All sins are attempts to fill voids. Mom and Daddy, you you concerned about your teenage kids and what they're up to out there? I don't blame you. There's a lot going on in the teenage world, isn't there? But let me just tell you, it's not the sin that's the problem. (laughs) It's the desire to ask of something else to fill the void that only God can fill. Sin is not simply doing bad things, folks, but it's putting good things in the place where God should be.
And then the final stroke, as I said, is verse 32, where we find, though they know that God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They stand on the sidelines and applaud as the world heads headlong into a moral cesspool. You know, guys, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room who, um, I don't want to overstate my case, but it was sad to hear of this ex-NFL quarterback who at 34 years old was murdered by his 20-year-old girlfriend and she then shot herself. He had left his wife and four children and moved in with the 20-year-old. And the, the news reports were that he had another girlfriend and she found out about it and she got panicky and went out and bought a gun on a Thursday night and then shot him on a, thir- a Saturday morning. That's sad to see a 20-year-old life and a 34-year-old life brought to an end. I, there's, nothing, there's no joy in that at all. But the thing that absolutely took my breath away is that the news, the, the sports networks, ESPN, Called him a hero. Is that who our heroes are, ladies and gentlemen? People who leave their wives and four kids and find a young woman who's 14 years younger than you. And then another and another and another. They not only do them but they give approval to those who practice them and all this 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 harrowing descent is the result of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness This is what happens when this is done. That's as faithful to that text, ladies and gentlemen, as I can be. Now, you're, you can consult with the 400 prophets of Baal. I know that's a problem. I know it is. I know that what I'm saying is not what you hear elsewhere. I'm not talking about churches. I'm talking about the media. I would say this, that the greatest proof, the greatest confirmation of the truth of what Paul is describing and telling us in this text is the moral world in which we find ourselves living presently. Look around you. What do you see? What do you see? I know what I see. What do you see? The consequences of suppressing the truth 
in unrighteousness. Maybe, ladies and gentlemen, now you will understand why Paul is so excited to go to Rome and preach the gospel. (laughs) That's what he says in verses 15, 16, and 17, which we'll look at next week. Can you understand how Paul, why Paul is so excited to get to Rome so that he can declare the gospel, which he calls the power of God unto salvation, the power to make the foulest clean, the power to extract me from the moral cesspool in which I'm living. So you have a pornography problem, do you? I'm sorry. I'm not... I know that's... I know that's a grief to you. But there's a way to get out. So you struggle with same-sex attraction, do you? Well, that's not good. But God can deal with that. Gambling, alcohol, adultery, There's a way out, folks. There's a way out. (laughs) There's a song that we love to sing around here. We sing it rather frequently. It goes like this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You believe that? Our Father, I do pray that you will take your word and that you will give us a piece of sober understanding about the world in which we live. That that what has happened in our very lifetimes is to see a culture that has determined to move away from your truth and we are reaping what we have sown. We are a culture adrift. We are a nation that is so full of problems that they it's beyond solving them. Unless. Unless... Unless, not that we, not that we paint the ghetto up and fix it all up and put new houses in there. But that we go to the ghetto with the gospel and see men changed and watch them walk out of the ghetto on their own. 
The power of God contained in the gospel. Use it, Lord, to change us, to change the world. And might Gracie Van be a part of that? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.